Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shibri Bhani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm really privileged to be joined by Dr. John White, who's the Chief Medical Officer of WebMD. WebMD, as you know, is the leading healthcare website in the United States with nearly 130 million users viewing billions of pages each month. In this role at WebMD, John leads efforts to develop partnerships to create meaningful change around important public health issues. John's career has included government service at the FDA, as well as the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and being the Chief Medical Expert and Vice President for Health and Education at the Discovery Channel. Before we get started, I'd like to thank Anne Bill Yu, who made the introduction between John and myself. So, John, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. So you have an impressive background spanning media and government and medicine. Can you tell our audience a bit more about what led you first to medicine and then also to these other areas? Sure. I've always been interested in science, and I felt that medicine could provide this combination of I I like people as well as like science. So for me, it was something that I had thought about really since I was a young child. But the difference I'll I'll tell you, I know we're going to get to it is I always thought I would, first I thought I'd be a surgeon. Then I thought I would, you know, be at a big academic medical center. I never thought I'd be involved in in health communication and media. So, and I do still see patients here in the Washington DC area, but it's a little different than what I initially went in it for. And I really evolved from wanting to treat that individual patient in front of me to to populations of patients. That makes a lot of sense. The scale that you can have, obviously, both in government and in media. So speaking of government, we've had the opportunity to have several incredible guests on the RaiseLine podcast, including Dr. Tom Frieden, who, as you know, ran the CDC, Dr. Donna Shalala, who was the HHS secretary under President Bill Clinton. What drew you to working to the FDA and the CMS And can you tell the audience a bit about your experiences at those agencies? Sure. And I was at Stanford as a research fellow, and I was very much interested in getting involved in health policy. And it's funny because now when young students and physicians tell me they want to do health policy, I I always give them a hard time. Like, what what, what does that mean? (laughs) Because that was happening to me when I was telling people, I want to be involved in health policy. I want to talk about payment issues and coverage issues. And Medicine is very hierarchical back then, particularly, and even now still. And everyone was like, work five years in clinic, serve on a committee. And and my perspective was, now I want to do some of those things, but I also want to be involved in these other areas. And I had known some people in government, and I reached out to them talking about my interest. So I met a few folks at at Medicare and and really came on board at, at a terrific time because they wanted to hire more physicians and talk about how do we determine what services we cover under the Medicare program. And that was really an exciting opportunity to to be involved in some new processes. Because again, for me, I wanted to have an impact on populations. And the reality is regulatory policy, when you're involved with enacting rules and regulations, does give you the ability to have a lot of impact. So, so for me, it's like, you know, I'm making insulin, I'm making uh, glucose monitors and continuous insulin pumps available, or I'm making certain drug therapies available. That's very exciting. 
and rewarding. And for me, I wanted to have that impact. I'm sure it's given you a really great insider view, especially over the past year. And we're going to get into COVID, but clearly both the CMS with the CARES Act enabling telemedicine, as well as the FDA vaccine, you probably have a really good perspective having worked at both agencies and kind of what went into those decisions. You know, and I wish more people spent time in government. So I've been fortunate that I've been in and out of government. And it's a great perspective because they're run very differently. I mean, you'll say something, I remember at FDA, and you'll say the goal is October that we'll publish something. And this is a true response. People will say, what year? And they're they're serious. Whereas in the private sector, you're told to put together, you know, launch a whole new section on your page, you know, in a week or so, and, and you'll get it done. And I remember when I first came to, to WebMD, like my calendar wasn't completely full with extraneous meetings as often happened, you know, in the government where it's at least 40 people in person back then, pre-COVID, on a call. But what's also very exciting about working in government, there are people that are extremely knowledgeable about particular subjects, areas, understand the nuances of data. And what I think they need is help in communicating that information to the general public. That's where I think there have been some of the challenges in terms of our our current actions relating to the COVID vaccine, as well as different treatment options as well. Absolutely. And, And I guess is that realization when you work at the government, is that partly what led you to your role at the Discovery Channel? And this would be a good time. Maybe we can pivot to your media experience, Discovery Channel and WebMD. We'd love to hear you fill in those gaps. Sure. And I never thought I would be in the media world. And, you know, full disclosure, Mehmet Oz is a friend of mine before he became, you know, Oprah's doctor and all of that. And his best friend was head of Discovery Communications and Discovery Channel. And they're like, we want to hire a doctor to help run this medical programming, primarily on daytime weekends. And Mehmet approached me and said, would you be interested? And honestly, I was somewhat flippant, like, why would I go, you know, to television? I'm an executive in, in government. But he really prevailed upon me that you can reach a lot of people through the power of media. And the attitude was, well, come for a year. If you don't like it, you'll call it your sabbatical. Only people in academia, I think, in government call it sabbatical. Otherwise, you know, what does that mean? And I ended up staying there nearly a decade. And and what I learned is the power of storytelling, the power of communicating these challenging messages as it relates to health, and at the same time, entertaining people on a television or video format but educating them as well. And for me, you know, I did a lot of disease topics, obviously, you know, in medicine, diabetes, heart disease, et cetera. But I was also interested in policy issues. And that may be somewhat why living in DC, you just are used to debating issues. So after nine years and making a hundred documentaries and, you know, thousands of digital shorts, and it was during the ACA, I thought, you know, I want to come back and talk specifically. So at Discovery Channel, then you you started to see programs about health IT and drug development because in many ways, I wanted to get back to those policy issues. So then I decided to go to the Food and Drug Administration and, and help open up this new office about engagement and diversity in clinical trials. And, and then the same thing, after about five or six years, I thought I want to 
broaden my reach to the audiences of different groups and you decided to come to WebMD and, and Medscape to, to continue that journey and, and continue to iterate as well. Yeah, I mean, that's a really, it's a really small world, obviously. I actually didn't know about the Dr. Oz connection. So 2013, I met him at in Philly at Temple University when he was doing the 15-minute physicals. Yeah. And one of his protégés, Mike Hoagland, is one of my best friends, got me an interview with him where he actually taught me, you know, I didn't know the Latin root for doctor, doctorate was to teach. And so there's a video we want to share with our audience in the show notes, we will, that you recently put out of like the five, five strategies for communicating health information very clearly that I thought was itself a very clear summary of how to do this. And this is actually a good transition because WebMD is obviously well-recognized as leading brand for health information. Information as a whole has been under attack, credible information for the past few years. And especially, it seems like in the last 12 months where people, you know, don't believe in the information about the government's telling them about the virus. Uh, there have been anti-vaxxers for, for, for many decades now. You know, what are some of the core changes you're seeing in your role leading one of the largest health information providers in terms of how the public perceives and engages with this information? One of the most frustrating aspects has been, to be quite honest, is people used to say, I don't understand science. I don't like science, right? People be like, I don't do math. I don't like math. But now people are saying, I don't trust science, right? They don't believe that data are real or, you know, just because it's in this, you know, well-respected peer-reviewed journal, my opinion is, is just as, as good as that. And I didn't used to see that before. And it's become very politicized. And I read a lot of the comments. There, there's a way that people can make comments to WebMD. I'm not always sure how you do that. It was the same with Discovery Channel. People find ways, not just through social, but, but reading that as well. If people disagree with us talking about a specific topic relating to COVID, people might accuse us of being political. And, and we're not. We have no political persuasion. We're trying to present the facts. And every piece of our content, particularly COVID, but every piece of content is peer-reviewed by a board-certified physician. And we put who that person is at the end of the page, and we list when it was written. So we take it very seriously. But that's been one of the biggest challenges that the power of anecdote is now all around that, you know, I might have an opinion as an epidemiologist, as a health services researcher, as a physician, and someone else will be like, well, my neighbor told me this, and, you know, I don't know which to believe. And how do we help them understand what are trusted sources? And, and we're trying to do that. And we're also trying to meet people where they are. So some people want to watch a short video. Some people want to do, believe it or not, people love slideshows. Still, I, I guess I look at a lot of slideshows online as well. People want to read stories. So at WebMD, we have to reach them on all those platforms as well. And really, our, our focus is always, let's provide the best, most accurate information that we can and update it when we learn more. Absolutely. And I really want to get into kind of your personal experience over the past year dealing with COVID, both as a physician who still sees patients, as well as at WebMD. I mean, I'm sure you guys went into overdrive, producing content, updating it. So can you tell our audience a bit about what the last, you know, say nine to 12 months have been like for you personally as a physician, as well as for the organization? 
You know, I, I joke to people that, you know, I didn't come to WebMD thinking that I would host a daily news show on COVID, right? So, so I have a whole other day job besides that. And I've been busier than I've ever been in my professional career in years, given that I don't have any travel, I'm not driving anywhere in the morning or driving back. But I also look at it as this once in a lifetime opportunity to have a real impact on the biggest health issue in our lifetime. And you don't get that opportunity a lot to lead in the discussions around these topics. So we are all 24 seven in, in terms of getting the right information online, responding to people's questions on social, soliciting what's on people's minds, even talking about vaccine distribution, helping people figure out when it might be their turn, talking about the need that we need to improve the process right now in terms of how it's distributed. So an enormous amount of work is on COVID. Well, at the same time, recognizing we have to address a lot of these other health issues as well. And in many ways, report a lot of news, which typically is not what we did before. It would primarily be news around the latest data on diabetes medicines or heart disease or cancer treatment. And now there's information almost every day, it seems, on, on COVID, whether more information on how it's transmitted, latest therapeutics. So it's it's been a roller coaster to some degree in terms of moving up and down, adjusting as we get more information. But again, it's it's one of those opportunities that you get once in a lifetime to really have an impact. And myself and all of my colleagues are like, we just want to get it right and do it right. On the physician side, you know, it's a balance of risk versus benefit. It's the same thing. You want to have an impact. You want to improve patients' lives. And you also have to be cautious about protecting your own risk when you come back to your family and making sure you don't spread disease. So a lot of my focus as everyone else has been in, in telehealth in terms of seeing patients. But, you know, early on in March and April, I was still going into the clinic and seeing patients and helping them also understand when's it appropriate to come to clinic and when we can do some of these things at home. Early on, folks weren't thinking as much about telehealth and telemedicine. Right. No, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I, I agree. Like, I think it's in many ways, obviously, we would all wish this didn't happen. But clearly, over the past year, it's made a lot of companies, a lot of organizations, a lot of individuals stronger and more resilient. And, you know, hopefully we can look back in a year or two and see that WebMD was one of those. Osmosis hopefully is one of those. So we've talked a lot about WebMD. Our audience should know that WebMD is also the parent organization for Medscape, which is the largest provider of online CME. And many regular listeners of Osmosis know that the godfather of Osmosis, one of my closest advisors and investors is Peter Frischoff, who started Medscape uh, back in 1995. Can you talk to us a bit about maybe, you know, you, you joke that you may have two full-time jobs. I bet you have more than that. Like, what does the Medscape side look like? And, and you know, especially around providing CME for clinicians, healthcareers are already so strapped for time and burned out and whatnot. I'm very proud of what my colleagues at Medscape have done, really becoming the biggest distributor of information on COVID to practicing clinicians. You know, we have nearly 800,000 physicians in the United States that are members of Medscape, millions worldwide. And we had the biggest COVID resource center of anyone out there continuously updating and pushing it out to 
positions, you know, using our app, using our newsletter, using all our online strategies, funding much of the education through Medscape itself, as well as some other sponsors. So I'm really proud of what we have done in terms of issues of testing and therapeutics. And now we're launching the same thing with the Vaccine Resource Center on Medscape to help clinicians understand what are the latest issues with the vaccines? How do we help encourage vaccine confidence? And it's not just in the United States, it's globally as well. So Medscape really had to pivot as well. When you think about it, a lot of Medscape were live events, right? You go to, you know, ASCO, you go to ACC, AHA, a lot of events, like everyone else had to pivot to make it all virtual, you know, but the key is you have to make it interesting as well. You simply can't, you know, tape a a video, plop it online, and then think people are going to come to it. And and that's where I think the expertise and the skill set of my colleagues really makes a difference as, as you compare it to others in terms of really being the leader out there in terms of COVID education. Yeah, and definitely has the people to back it up. We've been fortunate to get to know a number of them, people like Joanne Stranges and Ivan Aransky and you know, Steve Zatz even, who I think have set a really good foundation for both Medscape and WebMD. You have a bird's eye view of a lot of things happening in healthcare. For years you have, and you've been in it. What are some of your predictions for the lasting changes COVID will have on the healthcare system? You know, we all agree COVID has accelerated adoption of technology. We all use telehealth and telemedicine as the example, but I think it's much more than that. And we're also going to have limited resources. So we're going to talk less about these lasers that can recognize your heart rhythm from afar and be able to identify you. And what I've been telling people is it's all about bringing care into the home. So we've talked about it in terms of telehealth and telemedicine, but it's also about the development of wearables and sensors. And that's really remote patient monitoring. But but the other aspect why I see there's going to be investment in, I've been talking about this, I don't know if you've heard about it, it's still a bit in development, these toilets at home that would check your stool and your blood each time, I mean, <laughs> sorry, again. we'll check your stool and your urine each time you put something in the toilet in real time. So it'll check for blood in your stool, perhaps for hemorrhoids or colorectal cancer or a bleed, your urine for UTI, check for ketones, for, for, for diabetes. This is really virtual care of bringing care into the home and, and, and really thinking about prevention. I think we're going to see more clinical trials in the home. When I was at FDA, you know, no way would they allow a cancer clinical trial to go in the home, develop chemotherapy in the home. That's too dangerous. Well, we saw under COVID and still do that we needed to have more regulatory flexibility. And many trials, many treatments have been given in the home under certain circumstances. I think we're going to see more of that. Why do you have to go into the doctor's office, drive 30 minutes, wait and drive 30 minutes back, sometimes longer for a 15 minute visit? Much of that you can do by telehealth, but other aspects that you can do, you can do them at home. You can be more involved in your own care. You can take a a picture of a suspicious mole. You can get a preliminary read, you know, in a reasonable period of time that that same day. I think we're going to see more of that. You know, we also see that at WebMD. People search joint pain. They want an appointment today. They don't want to be waiting 
three weeks, wait till the morning to call. I think that's going to change too. How do we connect content to care? And how do we do it in a way that is credible and that's respected, but also integrates the healthcare system too? We, we don't want everyone to be their own doctor either. And that's where I think we're going to see continued advancements and enhancements. And you heard the toilet here first, so uh-huh. <laughs> I think for the majority of our audience, they probably heard it there first. I've I've been following that that research a bit, and I love that example. It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes. William Gibson said, "The future is already here; it's just not evenly distributed." You know, those toilets exist somewhere, and people are using them. So, but it's the concept of that you can help to manage your own care. You can become informed, and isn't that better to have that on this continuous basis? rather than we measure something at some single point in time. Absolutely. You may know we, we also had your counterpart at Medscape, the editor-in-chief, Eric Topol, on the podcast as well. And He's great. I, I talk to him every few days. I'm going to give him a hard time. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> yeah, I got to know him too around the same time as Dr. Oz with the, the smartphone physical thing we were doing. So that's very cool. I love what you just said there about that bridge between content and care. Because ultimately, I think that's why we're all like, health information exists. It isn't just an academic study, even though the academics are very interesting of it. It's really practical. You know, you want, it's one thing to learn about melanoma. It's another thing to actually get your mole checked right. and prevent something much worse later on. And I think COVID has changed people's expectations, almost in the sense that healthcare is becoming more retail. So if I can order all my groceries online and do curbside pickup or have it delivered, why do I have to wait? In some areas, literally three to four months for a dermatology appointment, like that doesn't make sense. Why do I have to wait so long for a GI appointment? I think people's expectations are changing pretty significantly. And we're going to see in a post-COVID world how consumers are going to become much more engaged. We use this term at FDA that I think is really finally coming to fruition, patient centricity. So the the patient, the consumer, has these needs that for too long have not been met. And we're going to need to treat them more truly as customers. And I think we're going to see that in the way that healthcare is delivered in terms of the resources and tools that we have, as well as those tools and resources that are going to be invested in. Is a latest MRI or PET scan, is that the best use of resources? Or perhaps some of these other tools and strategies, as well as the social determinants, of health as well. It's not just about access to healthcare that impacts how long someone lives and the quality of their life. I could tell you your zip code is probably equally, if not more important than your genetic code is to your overall health. And how can that be in 2021? You know, we have to work on eliminating disparities. Absolutely. And that's another maybe silver lining of 2020 was, I think, as a society, we're paying more attention to the disparities uh, ranging from who gets the vaccines first to... I hope, I hope we are. So I know we're coming up in time, so I have two final questions for you. The first is, you know, given that you are one of the main MDs at WebMD, you put it in the name, what is your advice to our audience of current and future healthcare professionals about meeting the challenges of COVID and beyond? In terms of professional career or... Yeah, professional advice. Yeah, in terms of their career path, you know, what I tell people is, you know, and I kind of said it early on, I never thought I would be at a media company. 
You know, it's not exactly the role that I thought I'd have, but I always networked. I always reached out to people that I thought were doing interesting work. And now more than ever, it's easier to do. And I've always been responsive to students and residents and other people early on in their career writing to me and people should feel free to email me or shoot me a note about what they want to accomplish in their career and how they can go about doing it. I mean, for me, it was always about, I want to be a good clinician. And I still see patients because that's important to my identity, but it's also important to my roles. I feel I'm a better chief medical officer at WebMD because I see patients. I thought it was the same when I was at FDA and CMS, that our policies and our regulations impacted my clinical practice. So it's really that balance. And, And sometimes you have to create your own opportunity. This role actually, believe it or not, at WebMD did not exist prior to my arrival. So in in many ways, you also have to think about what do you wanna do? And then talk to those folks who are doing similar things as you and, and really think about the role that you want in your career rather than one that's already written up and established. And then strategize and work on how you can reach that role and how you can get that job. That would be my advice for people that are early on in their training. You don't have to be limited to what's currently available or what you think you're supposed to be doing, but rather where your passion is and in your interests lie. That's awesome. That's, that's some excellent advice. My last question briefly is, is there anything else that we haven't covered about you, WebMD, healthcare in general that you'd like to be able to leave our audience with? You know, when it comes to healthcare and communication, it just goes back to that you know, original idea that we want to entertain people and educate them. But we also sometimes forget it's not about this one point in time. So, you know, I got to give you all the information when I think you're going to pay attention or the fact I'm going to build a website and they'll come. That doesn't work. That may work for baseball fields, but it doesn't work in this day and age. And one of the things that we often don't do in the healthcare community is we're not always good listeners. We interrupt patients we're hierarchical and paternal, and we need to do a better job of, of listening to our patients. I remember Janet Woodcock, the center director at FDA, who was my boss and is still at FDA. She'd always say, patients are their own experts, and we need to listen to that expertise. And we don't do that enough. So, so I, I wanted to also leave that note as well, because I think that's an important component as we think about the future of health and the future of medicine. Well, that's an excellent thing to end on. So, John, I'd I really like to thank you not only for taking the time to be on the Raise Line podcast, but more importantly for the work that you and your team are doing to improve healthcare, improve the public's perception and understanding and trust in healthcare information. No, absolutely. You know, I will point out, you did reach out to me as well. So you networked on LinkedIn and I said, I'd be happy to do it. And then, you know, we also went through other ways. So it's great to talk to you. I want to congratulate you on all that you are doing in helping to have dialogue, provide thought leadership, and and really encourage folks to, to engage in the discussions around health and healthcare. Thank you so much. And with that, I'm Shiv Rivlani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19.
If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.